It's good to see you all. Uh, if you have a Bible, I invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 2. And if you were here with us last year, you may, by a very outside distant chance, remember us studying this passage last year. Um, but the Lord has brought us back here to stir us up by way of reminder to call us to a worshipful response to Christ this Christmas, uh, for us to be on guard against going through the motions of Christmas without worship, for the season getting too busy or us getting too overwhelmed or us being too consumed with what is natural and what is seen and so end up missing what is supernatural and oftentimes, most of the times, unseen. And so we're going to dive into Matthew chapter 2 together, but before I do, let's pray and ask the Lord for his blessing on our time in his word. Father, our hearts cry out glory, glory to the King. And where we don't cry out glory or where this morning we don't feel a worshipful response, I pray that you would teach us to sift through all of the noise, all of the busyness, all of the chaos, all the circumstances of our lives, all of our own discouragement or anxieties. Lord Jesus, we want to come and sit at your feet right now. And so I pray for a response that is a gift from you, a response that we cannot conjure up on our own. We don't know how to manufacture worship in spirit and in truth, but you are seeking such worshipers for yourself even now. So I pray, Spirit of God, that you would come and that you would illuminate your word to us, that you would give us the gift of humility to tremble before your word, and that we would have eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts that obey. In Jesus' name, amen. Matthew chapter 2. Uh, so it's, it's a strange place to pick up, and it's going to be even part of how, um, how we talk about the birth of Christ. So um, verse, the last verse of chapter 1 says, uh, Joseph knew Mary not until Mary had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him, and assembled all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, and he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. So we're going to take this uh, text in segments. We're going to look first at this star and this heavenly glory that announced the coming of this Christ. But the star was not obvious and apparent to everyone Herod had to ascertain from the wise men when they saw the star. So this star was both a heavenly glory and a hidden one. Just like 
the Savior that the star told the birth of. He had both a heavenly glory and a hidden one. It reveals much to us about the sovereignty and the providence and the uh, just awesome power of God and God's ways and how Christ came. It tells us so much about who this king is and how his kingdom comes. And then we're going to look at the different responses of the people to the news of this king being born in Bethlehem. So first, there was this heavenly glory. Now, this star was not obvious to everyone. You had to have eyes to see it. These men, these magi, were philosophers or scientists. It was this kind of cast from the east. They were from this Babylonian Medo-Persian area where these empires had been. And it's the same kind of term that's used in the book of Daniel to describe the enchanters or those who um, worked divination, right? These guys specifically were those who studied the skies. They were astronomers. And so... um, before we get into kind of the science that proves out some of these things, I want to make sure that we don't miss the point this morning. One of the things that this reveals to us is that God reveals himself to diligent seekers. He often conceals his glory to be searched out by those who have faith to seek him. Proverbs 25, verse 1, says it this way, it's the glory of God to conceal things, and it's the glory of kings to search them out. So he has hidden his glory in a similar way to how this star was hidden, and he is sought out and discovered by those with faith and eyes to see. And so it is quite possible that this sort of cast of scientists, these astronomers, were part of a school that could have been started by Daniel in his day. Daniel was the chief of this type of magi in his day. We know from the book of Daniel. In Daniel chapter 7, we have this most glorious prophecy of the Son of Man who was to come, this Son of David that we have been talking about and looking at, to whom would be given all the dominion and the final kingdom of the earth, to whom would be the obedience of the peoples and all peoples and nations would come and serve this king. And the prophecy with the most exact precision concerning the timing of the coming of Christ is found in Daniel chapter 9. So it could be whether these uh, magi had Jewish roots or whether they had roots from Daniel and his wisdom or whether they had heard prophecies like from the prophet Balaam who in Numbers 24, 17, now you may remember the prophet Balaam, he was a false prophet, but when he would try to make these curses on the nation of Israel, the Spirit of God commandeered his mouth and took it and turned it into blessing and would prophesy true things instead. And in Numbers 24, 17, he said, a star shall come out of Jacob and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. The scepter is the same scepter that Jacob refers to when he's blessing his sons in Genesis 49, and he tells Judah that this scepter would not depart from Judah until the one comes to whom it belonged. So you add all of these things together, and it seems like these magi had some kind of knowledge that there was this coming king who would not just be the king of the Jews, but who would be the king of all peoples, And that somehow in the skies, there was going to be this revelation concerning when he would come. They could have known from Daniel's prophecy, even what times, what generation it would be where they were to be looking to the skies and studying these things. Genesis chapter 1, verse 14 and 15 says that God gave the sun and the moon, the stars for signs and seasons, for days and for years. He actually gave us the sun and the moon for times and seasons. We know that. Our calendar is based off of the earth's revolving around the sun. It has been in the past revolving around the lunar calendar and the 12 months around when the moon is full versus when it's new. You can tell I'm not an astronomer, so just bear with me. Tim, if I say something wrong, you can just edit it later, okay? Um. That gives you guys a lot of confidence. (laughs) Bear with me. All right, here we go. So 
We don't know a ton about stars, times, seasons based on the stars. I woke up this morning and I turned off all the lights outside of my house and you could just see in this kind of cool December morning more stars than you could see in the summertime when it's light outside. But even still, we have so much air pollution and light pollution that we don't see the same kind of night sky that people that maybe some of you see from farms or out in the country further away. Uh, But God gave us the sun and the moon and the stars, not just for times and seasons, but for signs. Now, really clear in the Old Testament, people get into astrology, looking at worshiping the stars and seeking them to influence uh, our destinies and influence the activities of men, and people were put to death for worshiping stars in that way. So we want to shy away from that. It's not what we're doing this morning. But it also is clear that in the study of astronomy, there are signs. There are these signs of the zodiac that are the same in all the cultures of the world. It's not like there's this common book where everybody just agrees, like this is a lion and this is a fill in the blank. Again, I don't know them all. But uh, there are references to these constellations in the scriptures. In the book of Job, you can see God asking Job about the Maseroth and about Pleiades and about Orion. God gave us these pictures in the stars. So we're not getting into astrology, but astronomy is a God-glorifying study. And like Eric said in our call to worship, these stars and the movements of the stars have exact movements that have not changed. And they've been wound up like clockwork. And the movements through the universe and our solar system and the planets around the sun have been the same and have been set like a clock to where you can rewind these movements and rewind the math, and it all has worked out the same. So there was this guy in the 1600s named um, Johannes Kepler. I don't know if I'm saying his name right. Uh, He developed math or worked out the math around the movement of the stars, and one of the first things that he tried to do was to work his way backward in the night sky to see if he could find this star. And we have just recently, in the last few decades, had the computer software and the ability to put all of these things into software programming where you can actually go into computer software and you can hit the rewind button and see exactly what the night skies looked like at the time of Jesus' birth. And it's not like a maybe or we think this is what it looked like um, in, in that range, right? You're, so you're going back and you're searching the night skies somewhere in this 10-year window. And it's not like, eh, that we think this is what it looked like. This is Here's exactly what was happening in the stars that have been functioning like a clock this whole time. And we're not going to spend a long time on this because our faith does not rest on, hey, look, science backed up the Bible here, so now we believe it. We believe these things before. But there are people who would say this is kind of a fictional story to kind of showcase the grandeur of Christ and something kind of fantastical that would just be like, look, this really bright star appeared in the sky, and it was just sort of like a supernova and he was born, and it was magical, and so here's this sort of Disney star that appeared, and science is always catching up to Scripture, what Scripture says to be true, like when Scripture says, he who sits enthroned above the circle of the earth, and the later scientists are like, huh, turns out the earth is round, and so it is the same here. So I have um, a picture of this constellation to show you um, of what could be most likely what was going on in the night sky, and I'll read to you from Revelation why. But what you have here uh, where you see this lion is the planet Jupiter, which is the king planet, and it was converging with Regulus, which is the king star, the king maker star. And it is nested inside of Leo, which is the king constellation, the lion of the tribe of Judah. And what was happening in this moment, and we'll get to why the moment's important, is uh, Jupiter was, uh, I don't know if it's correct to say did or went through what was called retrograde motion, which is when you pass a car on the freeway and it looks like that car's actually going backwards, but it's not going backwards, it's because you're moving past it that it looks like that. 
So Jupiter was doing that retrograde motion at this time. You can actually go back, Hannah. Um, so what was happening at this time when the Earth it looks like it's going past Jupiter is that Jupiter looks like it's going forward, and then it kind of does this backward motion and then circles it. So what it's doing is circling, c- circling this kingmaker star inside of this lion constellation. And then if you look at Virgo in the night sky, it looks like she's clothed in the sun. You've got the moon right here at her feet. The book of Revelation says in chapter 12 that when the one who was to be born, who would rule the nations with a rod of iron, there would be a great sign in the heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and crying out with birth pains and in the agony of giving birth. So uh, this is what was happening. So if you kind of hit the rewind button and go to where she's clothed in the sun and the moon at her feet, and then you also have this king planet circling this king star inside of the kingmaker constellation, it's probably this that they were looking at. And it takes guys who are scientists studying the scar to be able to see it and be like, whoa, this is the king of the Jews who was to be born. We've been expecting it right around this time because this is what the prophecies of Daniel said when he would appear. And the probability of all those stars and the planet and the sun and the moon being in this exact place at the same time only happens one, once in every 111 million years. So the chances of that happening right there, one in 111 million years, it's not going to happen again in even your lifetime. So nine months later, and you can fast forward to that next star. So the guys see this, they set out. Nine months later, they're journeying ahead. In between here, they get there. They're asking Herod, where's the king who's been born king of the Jews? People say, we don't know. We don't know what star you're talking about. We don't know what you're, what did you say the star was? When did you say it appeared? Nine months later, Jupiter and Venus look like they converge. They're this close together. Um, They are, in terms of bright things that you can see in the sky with your naked eye, there's the sun, then the moon, and then Jupiter and Venus. So here's number three and four converging together and looking like they're joining up as one really bright star in the sky. And as they traverse from Herod's home towards Bethlehem, these stars converge. And if you go to the next slide, you can see them looking like they're converging into the horizon right over Bethlehem. So this would be the religious leaders saying, yes, he's supposed to be born in Bethlehem. They turn from Herod's house, set out towards Bethlehem. And the Bible says that as they set out, uh, it says, after listening to the king, they went on their way and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. So this is not some like, Disney feature where it's like, and then all of a sudden this meteor just stops and it actually doesn't burn up. But here they've been following Jupiter since they saw it circling the kingmaker star. And as they set out forward, it combines with the other brightest thing that you can see in the sky and looks like this hugely bright star settling right over Bethlehem. So again, this is not so, hey, now your faith can be sure that the Bible is true because we can see these things backed up in the sky. But what I want to highlight is that this is a massively supernatural, God-ordained, arranged in the heavens uh, instance, and it was hidden. It looks very ordinary. It was revealed to those who were seeking, revealed to the humble who were, uh, had eyes to see. But the arrival of the Magi and their entourage was more conspicuous than the star that moved them to set out. That's apparent from the text. So when they arrive in Jerusalem, all of Jerusalem's in a stir. And they're all asking about this, there's this commotion about what they saw, but not about the star that they saw. So there's this heavenly glory and there's the hidden glory. The one who orchestrated that, who made all of that, God's word's clear. All things were made through Jesus and for Jesus. 
Apart from him, nothing was made that has been made. He is the one that created and named all of their stars. The Bible says that he leads forth their host by number. Because of his power and might, not one of them is missing, and he knows them all by name. And he arrived with hidden glory, just like this star. The incarnate God clothed in humanity and hidden in plain sight. This is a little bit of um, like grammar uh, nerdy of me, but Jesus is not even the main subject of these sentences about his birth. He's, it's, it's like Matthew almost talks about him like he's an afterthought. Joseph has this dream, and as the angel of the Lord commands him, he takes his wife. He knows her not until she has given birth to a son. So Mary's the one giving birth to a son. Joseph is the one who calls his name Jesus. And then right after that, it says, behold. And you would expect it to say, behold, this is the king of kings, the Lord of lords. He had this birth, and there was this Shekinah glory surrounding this baby. And everybody, the whole world saw it, and they all came to worship him. And he immediately took his throne as a three-month-old. It doesn't say any of that. It says, behold, wise men from the east came right over the birth of Christ. He came hidden. It was not in the pomp and circumstance of a prince's palace where they expected to find him. They went and set out to find the king of the Jews. And where would you expect to find him? So they go to Herod's palace. Where is the king? The king's not here. He came in a way that no one of worldly consequence knew that he had come. This is not just the king of the Jews. It's what we've been studying the last two weeks. This is the promised son of David, the promised blessing of Abraham, who is coming to bless all the nations of the world so that all peoples and languages and nations would serve him. And he came in a way that demonstrated that his kingdom was not of this world. He's not like us. He came humble. You can look at this progression of his life. The announcement came to the humble, to the poor, to the outcasts. I was reading in Luke this week, and when Mary goes to make her purification offering at the temple where Simeon and Anna find them, it says that she's offering turtle doves. And in the law, it says, if you're too poor to offer a lamb, then you can offer these birds instead. And so what does Mary offer? Jesus wasn't born into a family of nobility and rich standing. He was born to a family that couldn't afford a lamb. He came to the social outcasts. He came into the world not as an adult. You think about how he could have come. He could have come just like his second coming as a king in all of his glory. And he could have just completely obliterated all of his enemies and just have only come once. But instead of coming as an adult, as the king, in all of his glory, he came as a baby. The son of God was conceived in a womb and developed for nine months. This is miraculous. If you actually step back and you actually think about what he subjected himself to and his humility in doing so. A baby to the womb of a peasant girl. He came slow. And I think you have to imagine what Mary and Joseph would have wondered, what, what his baby cry would have sounded like. When the Psalms talk about the voice of the Lord, it says the voice of the Lord thunders and it, it breaks and snaps the cedars of Lebanon. And when anybody ever heard the voice of the Lord in the Old Testament, they fall at their feet and they worship. They fall on their, they fall on their faces like dead men. And so when this baby's cry pierces the night sky, it sounds just completely normal, ordinary. When he grew up, he grew up in obscurity. He chose Nazareth. He chose wherever you don't want to be from in Vermont or New Hampshire or Massachusetts, that's where Jesus chose to grow up. And the only thing we know about him in his upbringing is that he grew in wisdom and favor uh, with God and men. He grew in stature. We know that he experienced all of our suffering and all of our sorrow and all of our weakness and that he did it all completely without sin. But other than that, all of his upbringing is just hidden. He came teaching people to love their enemy, to consider everyone a neighbor, to give 
generously without expecting something in return. He taught us to walk humbly with God and to seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness. He taught that the kingdom of heaven belongs to those who are poor in spirit and that it was the meek that would inherit the earth. He came humbly. When he rides into Jerusalem, he's fulfilling a prophecy that says, Behold, your king is coming to you humble and riding on a donkey. He didn't come on a war horse to establish his kingdom right then and there. He came to conquer his enemies and to win them into his family by dying for us. This is a completely upside down kingdom. He washed his disciples' feet knowing that they would run away. He welcomed children as he taught. He called fishermen and tax collectors to be his cabinet and his first disciples, the one on whom he would build his kingdom. He spent time with sinners to bring them out of their bondage. He physically went to touch lepers to heal them when everybody else ran away. And at the Mount of Transfiguration, when a few of Jesus' disciples saw his glory physically manifested, and the voice of God comes and says, this is my beloved son in whom I am pleased. Listen to him. And they are all terrified. And Jesus didn't change in that moment. It was just that for a brief moment, the veiled in flesh the God had seen was all of a sudden no longer veiled in flesh and they were terrified. And then he comes to them and he says, don't be afraid. And they look up and what do they see? Godhead, veiled in flesh, hidden again. He goes to the cross in love for his enemies so that we could be forgiven and brought peace with God. He conquered his enemies by dying for us and invited us into his family. He established his reign forever in rising from the dead. But when he did so, he did it without an audience. This is further evidence of this God who is so unlike us. He rose from the dead and no one saw it. Now he revealed, he, he revealed himself to over 500 at one time and over and over again to his disciples. But he was... He, he rose from the dead without fanfare. When he ascended on high, he was seen by a few. He was taken up into a cloud. It says out of their sight. And that's where he reigns the universe from, completely hidden from view. Seen only by those with eyes of faith to see him. And Jesus rejoiced in the Father that it was this way. In Matthew chapter 11, it says, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, I thank you that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children, for such was your gracious will. The fact that Jesus has all power and authority and, and all the universe belongs to him, and he emptied himself of that right and claim to his own authority and humbled himself all the way in obedience to the Father to the point of death on a cross showcases a greater glory he has a greater glory that he had all the riches of heaven and he left that and entered into our poverty and our weakness so that you by his weakness and by his sacrifice could inherit all of his blessing and all of his riches. He has more glory because he's the lamb and not just the lion. The lamb who takes away the sins of the world. He taught that the way to power and exaltation was humility and weakness. And yes, just like Eric said, he flung all the stars into motion and set up the timing of his own birth when in the fullness of time, at just the right time, the time that God had pinpointed from before the foundation of the world, he would enter into our humanity. He created all these things and he was born tucked into a quiet corner in Bethlehem only to be sought out by those with eyes and hearts to seek him. Extraordinary glory hidden in the ordinary. So how do people respond? And this is important for us because you can look at all that and say, yes, yeah, obvious. We know that. That's what we're celebrating. It's the incarnate Christ. We know full of glory looks really ordinary. I think what's hard for some of us is you, you see Jesus as high and lifted up and as God-like, and you lose sight of his humanity. The world sees his humanity and refuses to see his deity. 
But what we need to see is that this is the God man and that this is his, these are his ways. He works supernaturally through really ordinary looking and natural means. He gathers his people to a Sunday gathering and he speaks to them supernaturally and it looks like getting out of breakfast and making coffee and going to, getting out of breakfast, getting out of bed, making breakfast and going to church. He changes the trajectory of your life because you chose to go to a D group one week. This is a God who works through really small and ordinary means and he does these supernatural workings through really, really ordinary things that look really humble, things that look really meager and small. So how do people respond to this Christ? Well, first you have Herod. Now Herod was a vicious tyrant. He had his own wife killed and some of his sons killed for political expediency. So when it says that Herod was troubled, this is not just like, oh man, that's nice. Like he was kind of disturbed. This was like, this is not a good thing that Herod was troubled when he found out that there was another king who was competing with his authority as king of the Jews. Now he had self-described himself as king of the Jews. He was placed in this region by the Roman Empire. He was not a natural born Jew. He's from what we would know as the Edomite country. And so he was installed by Rome, king of the Jews, and he ruled with an iron fist. And he responded with feigned opposition, right? Inside, we know because his cards will be shown, David's going to preach next week about his murderous rage. We know what he was hiding, what he was really feeling about opposition to his own authority. But how it comes across to the wise men is, let me go search this out because I have an interest too in worshiping this king when he's born. And so if you just go and check it out and then come back to me, let me know because I would love to come with you. I would love to come with you to worship. But what he had was a self-protected unbelief. It, It really is outright opposition to God and a hatred of God and his authority with a veneer of tolerance over top. And we see it all the time in our society. It looks like there's tolerance and it looks like it's okay for you to believe that. But as soon as it's plain that Jesus's authority infringes upon other people's authority, then there's outright opposition and hatred, a, a, a rage. So this is sort of option number one of how we could respond to Jesus this Christmas as he reveals himself is we could have a kind of neat cultural toleration of Jesus so long as he kind of stays in his cage and what you mean by king over all the earth is not king over me. Then you have all Jerusalem. Now the text says that all Jerusalem was troubled with Herod and this coming of the of the Magi's entourage. Now a lot of times in this kind of neat little nativity scenes, there's three magi, but we don't know how many magi there were. There were three gifts. And uh, we have songs that are like, we three kings, but it could have been just a ton of them. It, it, we know that they come from the east and there's, they're coming on camels and they're bringing gifts. But apparently this entourage is so big that it's the talk of the town when they go to Herod and they're asking like, we have arrived because we found out that there's a king that's been born here and we wanna know where he is. And Herod is troubled in a public way and the people are troubled with Herod in a public way and nobody else goes to greet him. Now, we can only conjecture about the reasons why all of Jerusalem will be troubled about the arrival of Christ and not actually go out to worship him. But these are the parents or even part of the same generation that would crucify the Lord Jesus. And we know much about that generation. So I'll give you just two possible reasons. One was because Herod was disturbed. And if, he, if they know what kind of king, what kind of tyrant this is, and he's troubled, then they don't want to be caught anywhere near celebrating a rival to his power. And so they had a fear 
of man that caused them to have a wait and see mentality. Uh, Jesus, when he's describing the parable of the soils, this would be like those who receive Christ on, on rocky soil. And they receive Jesus with joy until opposition arises on account of the word and then immediately they fall away. Like, I will follow Jesus and believe this gospel so long as it's not dangerous to me. But as soon as it comes into um, endangering me, endangering my family, endangering our, our safety, or people start to get unkind or angry with me on account of Jesus, then I'm out. And the Lord Jesus asks people in John chapter 5, verse 44, how can you believe when you receive the glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God. Jesus is saying, how can you believe on me? That if, if you have this people-pleasing, self-protected, self-preservation safety going on, it is going to be an obstacle to true saving faith. If you are seeking the glory that comes from people, the ad- adulation that comes from people, or you fear what people can do to you, it will keep you from taking up your cross and following Jesus. And Jesus says, do not fear man who can kill your body, but after that there's no more that they can do. Fear him who can cast both body and soul into hell. And so it could be that they just had this huge fear of Herod and what he might do, and so they hung back. The other possibility is that we know later... um, Sorry, with that, there's sort of this mob mentality, right? We'll go with what everybody else is doing. So if there was a huge number of people that Herod couldn't really do anything about going out to see them, then maybe I would go with him. So what this looked like in Jesus' day is on Palm Sunday, people crying out with the crowds, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Save us. And then one week later, crucify him. Same crowds going with the mobs and whatever was saying, whatever was easiest, whatever the people next to me are doing where I can be kind of hidden and safe and protected. But many in Jesus' day followed him because of what he could do for them. So we know people in this time, they were, they were longing for and waiting for deliverance from Roman rule. And there were many that kind of were self-proclaimed messiahs. And so a lot of these people had a well, we'll just wait and see. If he's been born there, then that's great. I guess we'll find out when he starts delivering us, when he starts doing something for us, uh, and we'll begin following him when, when he can do something for us, when he can prove it out. So you can look at this. Go to John 6. I'm not going to read it right now, but you see Jesus talking about people following him because of what that he could do for them, right? So you have people that follow vending machine Jesus. And as long as it seems like there's a Jesus that I can pray to and he'll give me what I want or what I'm asking for, then I'll follow him. But as soon as he has some kind of demand on my life that actually costs me something, then I'm out. So you have Herod, you have all of Jerusalem, and then you have the religious leaders who are the most accountable. Because these religious leaders respond with passive indifference Their problem was not a lack of knowledge, but a lack of faith. They knew the word. When Herod comes to them and says, where is the king? Where's the promised Messiah supposed to be born? They go immediately to Micah 5.2. And they butcher the, the quotation of it, but they know where it comes from. And they know that he's supposed to be born there. And they don't go out to him. And I think this is probably the biggest wake-up call for Christians this Christmas is that there is a lot of knowledge about the Word and about Jesus, and it's really easy to hear incredible news about Him, to see God-given truth from Him and to not go out to Him, to, to have a heart that remains aloof or indifferent, to hear nice passages of Scripture, to read nice devotionals that say nice things about Jesus and then to get up from there and to go about our day. This one commentary says that these 
the successors of these religious experts, meaning the children of these men, would be at odds with the adult Jesus. And in the end, they would conspire to put Christ to death. The most knowledgeable church people often include those who take Jesus for granted. Doesn't mean all church people take Jesus for granted. It says you got all these knowledgeable people and inside of them, you have the people who most take Jesus for granted. It is a dangerous situation to be in. It is no less a sin than the outright hatred of Herod. For in the end, it leads to the same destiny. Where Herod failed to kill the baby Jesus, the chief priests succeeded. Our pride in our knowledge of Christ, the Bible, and the church may turn out to be a snare in the end. The problem is not knowledge of the Bible, knowledge of facts about Christ. The question is, what do you do with them? And it, this is my prayer, and it has been all week, that all of our knowledge about Christ would lead to a prostrated worship of Christ. That we would not become a people who know so much of the word that we become dull of hearing because we heard and didn't appropriate. We, we heard the voice of God and didn't obey or, or didn't worship, and then that sort of became a habit. And we started hearing more and obeying less. And before you know it, you know so much more scripture than you actually have joy in Jesus and actually worship him in secret. So we have a faith that gathers and goes through the motions and the traditions and the culture of Christianity without having private, vibrant worship. In all of these instances above, you could see people just being busy. Like the, the announcement of the birth of Christ was just one more thing. We'll just wait and see. Maybe, maybe they had a hard week and this just looked like an ordinary moment and they missed it. Yeah, sure. Uh, so a child's been born in Bethlehem. Sounds great. We'll find out. I've got a full week. I mean, you could just see this being us in the midst of this passage, having a, amazing news told to us and being too busy to respond with worship. Herod knew of the Christ from a distance. The religious leaders knew he would be coming into the world and knew where he was coming from according to the word. And neither they nor most of the Jewish people responded to him appropriately. And the people that did were these magi from the east from among the nations, not the Jews. Jesus came to his own and his own did not receive him, but he came to show that this gospel was for all peoples. And that's at the heart of this text this morning is that this Christ was for all peoples. This was the ruler who was born, the ruler of the kings of the earth, so that kings from among the nations would come and bow down and say, where is the king who has been born? We have come to worship him. This is the first mention of worship in the New Testament. And worship is an important theme in Matthew. Matthew uses it 10 times. The first reference is in verse 2 when they say that we have come to worship him. And their actual worship of him in verse 8 is the first instance of anybody worshiping Jesus in the New Testament. And it's people from among the nations. So they were... Uh, just a few observations about how they worshiped and how they responded to help inform our response to Jesus this Christmas, and then we're done. The first was they came with bold desire. These philosophers, these magi, they made diligent search of the sky, and they were waiting for a sign in which they would set out and cross hundreds of miles with gifts of great worth so that they could go lavish it at the feet of this king who was coming. God says, you will, if you seek him, you will find him. When? When you seek him with all of your heart. It's the all of your heart is the kind of seeking that looks like leaving everything to seek him out. This is a wholehearted pursuit where they had this bold 
desire to find this king and faith to seek him out. And their desire to worship the king stands in stark contrast to the apathy and indifference of the Jews. And they knew that they were coming to an existing king. This is where we see bold desire because they come to Herod and they say, where is the one who has been born who is right now king of the Jews? And they're saying that to a man who considered himself to be king of the Jews. But right into any kind of dangerous opposition to the rightful king of Jesus, they're coming with bold faith and saying, there is a king who has been born. It is a proclamation as if to tell this king, there is a new king and you're not him. Where is he? We've come to worship him. And they sought him alone. This is sort of the second main thing. You can see they didn't, they didn't do what the rest of Jerusalem did, where it was, we'll go out to him when others go out to him. We'll cry Hosanna when others are crying Hosanna and we'll shout crucify him when others are shouting crucify him. They're not letting their spiritual pursuit of Christ be driven by the people around them where all of our pursuit of God goes to the lowest common denominator of the zeal around us. They had a pursuit of Christ that was driven by what they had seen and nothing would stop them. They were seeking him out and despite this secret meeting with the tyrant and his in the indifference of the religious leaders, uh, their question was, where is he? Not, has he been born? And when they get there, they find him. The text says, likely as a toddler. So sorry that we keep destroying your view of the nativity. But when they got there, he's likely somewhere between one and two. That's why Herod says, look, everybody south of two, kill all of them. So the, the language is not of them finding an infant. They find this child. But the child language is intentional because Matthew is calling you back to Isaiah 9 and this child who has come. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And this was the mighty God, the, the counselor who was to come. But when they find him as a toddler born to a poor couple, instead of thinking that they had made some grave mistake, they get on their face and they worship. Because they, they heard revelation from God. They saw this very specific word from God in the heavens. And they carry it through all the way to the feet of Jesus and they worship. It says that as they set back out. So this is very much like as Moses turned aside when he saw the burning bush, then God spoke to him. It was as they set back out. Then they saw the star again. And I've thought about Corey and Ashley often when I read about this. And Ashley's here. So if you haven't seen her, go see her. Um, you know, these instances of setting out, not knowing where you're going. And we, we set out. And as we set out, then the Lord gave us direction. It was as we set out, then the sign became more clear. And as they set out, the star reappears. And when they see the star again, it says they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy, which is code for they absolutely lost their minds with excitement. This, this joy is used more than 200 times in the Bible, but this term for great joy is only used at like the coronation of Solomon, the restoration of Passover in Josiah's day, the dedication of the walls in Nehemiah's day, uh, when Jesus was raised from the dead and ascended, when the Gentiles found out they're included in the new covenant, and when we're presented before the presence of our God, blameless with great joy. So they were out of their minds, besides themselves, excited. Which is what revelation of Christ, when you see him, will do. And it's not a trite joy. It's not a you don't know what I'm going through kind of joy. Or you don't know how hard the holiday season's are for me kind of joy. This is a joy that picks you up and carries you to the feet of Jesus. It's a joy that you can lean against all the weight of your suffering and it weighs more. And the size of their joy was matched by the depth of their worship. It says that they prostrated themselves before him. And this is what I'm praying for us as a church, that we would not just have this nice joy, this neat joy this Christmas, but 
a revelation of Jesus and a, a seeing of him in the very ordinary, in the ordinariness of your morning time alone with him, in the ordinariness of a Sunday morning sermon. And the response is that we see this revelation from God that seems so ordinary. And our response was prostrated worship. That Matthew uses these terms that are redundant. That's like they really fell down on their face. It says they fell down and prostrated themselves before him, meaning they prostrated themselves two times <laughs> before this king. And some people would say, this is just what you did before a king. You shouldn't make too much of this. But they didn't do this with Herod. When they met Herod, there was no prostration. There was no honoring of the king in this way. But when they see the child, the king, their king, their only response was to fall on their face and to worship. And then what did they do? They lavished their treasures on him. They had found the one who was worth more than all the treasures in the world. And they had brought gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And yes, is there symbolism in the gifts? I think so. One, there was a prophecy in Isaiah that these men would come from the east and lavish this king with gold and frankincense. So Isaiah had prophesied this. Yes, this was gold for a king and frankincense for his divinity and f because he's our high priest and myrrh because he was going to the cross and his suffering was always in view from the manger. But the point of these gifts, these lavish gifts that they came was that they had recognized here was the pearl of great price. Here was the treasure found hidden in a field, hidden. And for joy, they went and sold everything that they had and came to worship him. And this is the only right response to Jesus this Christmas. And so the question for us is what are we going to do with the revelation of God? Because we have a word more sure than a voice from heaven. We have revelation more clear than if you walked outside and saw the same starry night with the same, even if it, the Bethlehem star was this supernova that just burst onto the scene and hovered in the night sky. We have revelation in the word of God that is more sure and more certain than even that. God's word's clear. God has revealed himself through his general revelation, through the stars, through all that he's made. He's told us what he's like through what he's created, and he has given a specific revelation of who Christ is and what he's done through the scriptures. And so how will we respond to a greater glory than the glory of seeing a star in Bethlehem? It was enough for the wise men to set out on this huge journey to give up everything and to come and worship at the feet of Jesus. And we have a gospel more clear, a word more sure, that into our life, God the Father, from before the foundation of the world, had counsel with the Son. It's a lamb slain before the foundation of the world. That he would enter into our humanity and redeem for himself a people for his own possession. That I think that our awe of what Christ has done gets lost on us because we lose sight of how much we need his salvation. This has been especially precious to me this week because I felt, yesterday I felt done. Done, like discouraged, tired, broken over sin, tired of being my same self. Not enough as a dad, not enough as a husband, not enough as a pastor. Anybody else? And you feel like, I don't have what it takes. And I want to honor Jesus with my life. And I'm tired of learning these same lessons over again. I'm tired of apologizing, not repenting. And into that, he sent Christ, who knows all of our weakness and yet without sin. So that right now he can save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. And so if you, like the Pharisees, like the religious leaders, don't need Christ, 
then maybe this revelation of God sending his son into the world as a baby and the humility of Christ won't be that mind-blowing to you. You've heard it before. It's crusty, it's stale, it's old, and you've got stuff going on. But if you know yourself to be the foremost of sinners, that it's a trustworthy statement that God sent Jesus into the world to save sinners of whom we are foremost, then we will travel to great lengths and lay all of our life and our treasures before him in prostrated worship and sing with all of our hearts, worthy is the Lamb to receive honor and glory and power and dominion because with his blood he ransomed people for God from every tribe and tongue and people and nation and it was evident as his birth he didn't come to save people who were righteous in themselves he came for the ungodly he came for you and he came for me and it's reason this Christmas to fall at his feet. It's reason this Christmas to have a fresh surrender, a fresh prostration at his feet and say, Jesus, I've gotten away from a true response to who you are. I've seen you veiled and I've worshiped you as ordinary instead of looking beyond the veil and seeing the God-man. And so, Eric and Jesse, you guys can go back up. But I don't know, maybe the best way to ask this question is when's the last time that you found yourself on your face before God? It could be recently. But that is where we belong as disciples of Jesus and as worshipers of God where we will not stop seeking him until we have seen a vision of him that puts us on our face before him. We see him in his glory and in his transcendence, and we see him in his glory because Jesus is the one who came and offered himself in our place and invites us, enemies of God, to be sons and daughters, forgiven and free. And so... I just invite you, maybe, maybe you're in one of a couple spots. I think that we're probably in danger of being like all of Jerusalem, hearing amazing truth and just being too busy or maybe having a fear of man, maybe not wanting to be seen as too extreme, maybe um, the temperature of your spiritual life just always goes down to the temperature of people around you. And we need to repent of not worshiping Jesus in a way that is worthy of him. But maybe you've been busy. Maybe you're like the religious leaders who know so much, but um, what we know hasn't been translated into prostrated worship that gives up other things for the sake of coming to worship the true king. And so I just want to invite you to response, to, to respond to him with humility, with repentance, with our hearts, to this king who revealed himself in a humble and ordinary way. And he still hides himself to be found by you. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you have not left us without a witness, whether it be stars in the night sky or the clarity of your word you have given us a witness that has gone out into all the earth lord jesus sweet i'm mindful right now that it is so likely that we hear messages in a lukewarm state and we leave in a lukewarm state And so we're pleading with you, Spirit of God, would you come and revive our hearts and refresh us with your presence. I pray right now that you would send a spirit of revelation and conviction and joy in your people, that the gospel is true and that the power of Jesus is a power to save 
and to cleanse us from our sins and to forgive us from our unrighteousness and that we can now, because you lived all of our same life in our same weakness, but without sin, we can draw near for help and mercy in time of need. As I pray for those who have been living in a far country or have been living in an indifferent state or maybe have felt guilty about staying there or maybe who have been content living there, oh God, would you give them a spirit of conviction, of hope, of reassurance that the Father's on the front porch running to welcome home. Lord, nothing but prostrated worship will do. So I pray that you would put our hearts on their faces and that we would worship you in spirit and in truth. In Jesus' name, amen.